0: Well, as you've heard, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking from that passage that Steve read. And I'll actually be speaking from verse 30 as well. So just turn back your, to your Bible, please. And if you've got the church Bible, it's page 1008 and page 1009. And our reading is going to go beyond that bold heading. And we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute. So here's verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, All they had done and taught. This is the word of God. Right. Earlier this month it was reported that Sir Ernest Shackleton's lost ship, the Endurance, had been found at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. I don't know if you saw the the story and the footage of this. The Endurance was crushed in the sea ice and sank back in 1915. And now, 107 years later, they've found this ship which sank like that and, and settled upright. And they found it, and it's three kilometers deep. Can you imagine how much? I can't imagine how deep that is. And they've, they've not only found this ship, but they've sent some um, gizmo down there, and it's filmed the Endurance, some sort of underwater drone. And it's filmed it. And the the footage of this thing is absolutely incredible. And there are creatures living on this ship a mile and a half down and swimming around. Now, Sir Ernest Shackleton was an intrepid explorer. He led three expeditions to the Antarctic. And legend has it that he placed an advert in the Times newspaper that said this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now whether or not he placed that advert, those words are certainly true to Shackleton and his mission to the Antarctic. And that is a fitting advertisement, a fitting introduction to our passage today. Jesus sends his disciples on mission. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian here, then you're on mission too. He sends you as well. And so this is written for you, what it means to go on mission with Jesus. Now, this passage is another example of what the scholars call a sandwich You probably remember us talking about sandwiches here before if you've been around. Mark, the writer, starts a story. Partway through, he interrupts himself with another story. And then he finishes by coming back to the original one. So it kind of goes A, B, A. You've got the bread, the filling in the middle, and then the other bit of bread. It's a sandwich. And if you have come to this church, in fact, if you're new here today, great to meet you. I hope I can meet you on the door afterwards. But before you go, you can pick up a free loaf of bread. I mean, why would you want to go to any other church? You can get free bread here. Just use your loaf. Uh, And some of these loaves, we have, we took one home last week that was, it was really good quality. I mean, we would never, we would never spend money on bread this good. And we have this, this knife, and you know you're trying to cut it, and, and the slices are never even, are they? You know, you, the first one comes out a bit of a wonky shape, and then the second one's really thick, and then the third slice is really thin, and that's what this sandwich is like in Mark, right? Mark 6. It begins with quite a thick piece of bread, <laughs> which is verses uh, from verse 1 to 13. So there's quite a thick piece, and then we've got the filling about John the Baptist, that goes from verse 14 to 29. And then we've got this really thin slice of bread at verse 30, which I just read. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So that's the structure of it. It's a sandwich. And the flashback story about John the Baptist is not a digression. Mark has wrapped the story of the disciples around the death of John deliberately so that the two stories shed light on each other. This entire section is about the character of mission. Going on mission with Jesus. In other words, this is what Jesus sends his followers to do, and that means he sends us to do it as well. This is not going to give us direct guidelines on how to do mission, although there is some of that, but it's about what the character of the mission is. And here's the main idea. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down because this is the main idea of the whole sermon. Going on mission with Jesus means dying to yourself and discovering glory. Going on mission with Jesus means dying to yourself and discovering glory. Eleven words. And I've just divided that big idea into three points today. So if you can get that one sentence, you've got the whole sermon. Going on mission with Jesus, point one, means dying to yourself, point two, and discovering glory. Firstly, going on mission with Jesus. We learn here that the first thing about our mission as followers is an extension Of Jesus work in the world look at verse 7 calling the 12 to him he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits and they go and they preach and teach and then look at verse 12 they went out and they preached that people should repent they drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them now what do you see there what are they doing They're doing the stuff that Jesus did. So they've been with Jesus. Remember he called them. They followed. Some of them were on the beach fixing their nets. Someone was at a tax collector's booth. They followed and they've been with him, living with him, walking the countryside, seeing him do these things, preaching, casting out demons, impure spirits, healing people. And now they go out and he sends them two by two and off they go. And they're just doing what Jesus did. It's an extension of Jesus' mission. So like Jesus, they go into the world of the people, into their towns, into their homes, into their lives, and they live alongside them. Now remember the mission of Jesus. Remember his grace, who came all the way down from heaven to earth, from deity to join himself to humanity, taking the form of a man Actually, taking this becoming a slave and come and submitting himself even to death, even death on the cross, the worst of all deaths. Such was his condescension. The Prince of Glory made himself the slave of all. So, can we, his followers, extend his mission by imitating him and living alongside those we want to reach? Now, that may mean for you, friend, living in a place. That you wouldn't normally have aspired to live in. Maybe not living in your dream house. It may mean spending your time, which is probably the most precious thing you have. Spending your time with people who you wouldn't naturally have aspired to be with. That's what Jesus did. And it will mean pouring your life out in costly service to people who don't give anything back to you. That is an extension of what Jesus did. It's exactly what he did for us, and we are to now to extend his work in the world. Uh, I've been here a few evenings over the last couple of months to different youth and children's works that meet here in the week, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. as over 200 children and young people come through these doors during the week. Isn't that amazing? Think about that over... over 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years. How many children get shaped by this ministry? And what I've noticed with the leaders is that the leaders have to put up with quite a lot of children who are really hard work. Some of them are deliberately rude. Some are just disobedient. The leaders are pouring out their lives. Who wants to go out on Friday night? Honestly, everybody in the world wants Friday night in with a takeaway and a bottle of wine. And a, a nice film. Friday night, these leaders are here, week in, week out. That is an extension, surely, of the mission of Jesus, isn't it? This is one example, and I know there are many more here. Now, because it's an extension of Jesus' ministry, the mission has two aspects quite interesting here. It is preaching and teaching, that's one thing, sharing the Word, but it's also practical. Deeds. They go and they... They cast out impure spirits, which is a deed of power, a work of power over, over um, oppressive spirits. And they also serve and they anoint with oil people who are ill and they serve them and heal them. So Jesus' mission is two things here, word and deed. And these are two things that are often driven apart in churches, especially in the Western world. Especially in the last 150 years or so. If you were to look at the ministry of the Victorian Christians... These two things went hand in hand, word and deed. Many of the great charities in our country were founded by evangelical Christians in the 1850s to about 1900 because they believed that word and deed went together. But the early 20th century saw a great split between these things and a fear that if we went with deeds, we would end up with a social gospel that was no gospel at all. But in the ministry of Jesus, and actually the church through all generations mostly, Word and deed go together. So our ministry is not just teaching people and not just helping people. It has to be both. It has to be both. If you only help people, if you only serve them, if you only talk about their social needs and their social concerns and help them in their deprivation and help them out of poverty, all good. If you only do that, but you never talk about the gospel, you're actually no different from any other charitable organization. And all the glory goes to you. But if you talk about Jesus... You show the reason why you want to help. But if you only talk about the love of Christ, you never show the love in action. It sounds hollow. We have to have word and deed put together. It's practical. The disciples preach the good news and they also bring the effects of the good news into people's lives. They help practically. They go out in servant mode, not just in condemnation mode. They address people's felt needs and I remember this church many years ago when this building opened and we began to run sports and different kind of leisure activities there was also a divorce recovery workshop divorce recovery workshop that launched and that was one of the most powerful ministries that happened here because it was addressing people's felt needs very deeply felt needs Notice the connection here with physical healing and restoration. Christians are to be the greatest servants and very involved in alleviating people's suffering and hurt. And that's why the, one reason why the King Center is so good. So there's an extension of Jesus' ministry, which means preaching and practical, but also Jesus' min- mission is urgent. Did you notice that? Look at um, verse 8. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. It's urgent. This is what Jesus' instructions reveal. Don't take a bag. Don't stand around packing your handbag like Steve Bialy. Don't spend time counting what you've got in your wallet. Just go. Walk out the door. Don't turn around now. You're not welcome anymore. Get on with it. This is life and death stuff. Stop sitting around, planning your itinerary on Google, and go. Now, what's all this about shaking the dust off your feet? Last time I did that, I had a back injury two days later. Be careful. Partly, Jesus is saying to them, because of the urgency here, don't waste time. If they really don't want to know about it, if they really don't want to listen, just shake your dust off and go somewhere else with somebody who will listen. I I had the pleasure and privilege of getting to know a man in Manchester who had been a missionary in North Africa for 20 years, fluent Arabic speaker. Wonderful to be able to do that. And he came with quite a radical approach that offended some of the Christians in Manchester because he said when you're trying to reach Muslims don't try and make friends with the most devout Muslim and spend years and years becoming friends with them hoping that one day you might share the gospel because they may never respond because there are thousands and thousands of Muslims who are actually on the way out of Islam and they're looking for the answer find them go to them don't make friends with them just tell them about Jesus in fact he said The fastest growing religion in the world is post-Islam. Offended some people. But there is an urgency, isn't there? People's lives are short. We don't know how long we've got. There is a real eternity. Heaven and hell. There is only one way to be saved. Through Jesus Christ. There is an urgency. The clock is ticking for all of us. So on one hand, there's an impatience about Jesus' mission. Don't waste time. And in their culture, in the Jewish culture of that time, shaking the the, uh, dust off your sandals is a gesture that they know what it means. It brings home to them the gravity of rejecting the message of Jesus. Because Jewish people who've been traveling in the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, if they've been traveling in pagan territory in pagan lands and they come out of that land when they re-entered Israel they would shake the dust off their shoes shaking off this sort of uncleanness so to Jews for the disciples to shake the dust off their feet is, is like a, a cold glass of cold water in their face what because it's saying this if you reject Jesus you're acting like pagans now, what, what, about, what does that mean for us? How do we apply this? Should we do that? Well, not exactly, but there are lessons for us. Notice the difference in context. They are on a time-sensitive mission that is limited to the people of Israel. They were the people that Jesus primarily went to. We, Christians, are sent on a global mission to reach every nation, every ethnic group, And we're not under that same time pressure uh, of the apostles, the sent ones. In a sense, our mission as the church is a long-term task. It continues until the Lord returns. But it is still serious and urgent. There is an urgency about telling people the good news. Let us not be lulled into forgetting that. Because our lives are really comfortable and spiritually, our lives are very distracting. We too need to get on with it. So one immediate prayer that you could pray right now is, Lord, where, do you, where are you sending me this week? Who are you working in? Whose life are you working in, Lord, that you want me to go and be open and attentive and know when to speak? We need to get on with it and not be afraid of people who who are going to reject Jesus. Because the consequences for them are terrible. Now there is a paradox in this passage. And it's this. The message of Jesus is both attractive and repulsive at the same time. (laughs) This is a paradox. The message of Jesus is attractive. It really draws people It's beautiful. And it's repulsive, it's offensive at the same time. Notice about King Herod. This guy was one of them there's more than one Herod in at this time, so it can be confusing. This guy is called Herod Antipas. He was a kind of client king in one part of the country. And it says that he'd arrested John the Baptist and had him bound and put in prison. That's in verse 17. And he did it because of his brother's wife, Herodias, whom he had married and john has been speaking up and saying to herod it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife john is very bold to speak truth to power and so herodias that's the wife nursed a grudge against john and wanted to kill him but she was not able to why verse 20 herod feared john and he protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man and when john heard sorry herod heard john he was greatly puzzled Yet he liked to listen to him. Isn't that interesting? Even though this guy is is speaking the truth and is very fearless, Herod still likes to listen to him. There's something about it. It's magnetic. The message exerts a strange attraction and power. People sometimes will listen to things that disturb them greatly. But notice also how Herod compounds his guilt. He loves John's preaching. He can listen to his sermons all day long, but it doesn't affect his behavior at parties. A fearless prophet is undone by a cowardly king who saved his face but lost his soul. Because when Herodias' daughter comes in and dances, and the scholars think it was probably quite a lewd dance on a drunken occasion, then Herod made this bold and outrageous boast, ask me anything you want, up to half my kingdom and you will have it. And the girl goes out and asks her mother, and guess what? Get, get me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. What a text to preach on on Mother's Day. I didn't plan that. just tell you that now. I mean, I've been... A, Mocking my friend who who preached on Mother's Day about Jesus saying you've got to hate your your mother and your brothers. Here I am. I mean, don't get your mother everything she asks for. That's the lesson from that. Now, what is the 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 implication for us of this paradox, attraction and repulsion? It's that the on the one hand, the message we believe and teach, Christians, is offensive. Partly because it's simple. And it lacks sophistication. A child can understand and respond to the message. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. So in the face of the great intellectual philosophies and the sophisticated people of the world, the gospel seems embarrassing. Don't you find that sometimes? At the office... At the school gate, in the reading group, when people at the pub find out you're a Christian. Oh, right, really. So we are tempted to tweak the gospel and make it acceptable to its cultured despisers. This is a particular temptation in places of learning, colleges, uni, schools. Beware. If we alter the gospel, we will lose it. The gospel teaches things that fly in the face of our culture's most cherished beliefs. Our culture exalts science as the final arbiter of truth. You know, scientists now occupy the place that priests had 100 years ago. If if the scientist says it, it must be true, (laughs) right? Oh, according to science, well, that's the final arbiter. But the gospel says that the gospel is unashamedly supernatural. God, angels, demons, spirit, the Holy Spirit. You can't prove these things with science. can't disprove them either. Our culture exalts personal choice as the final arbiter of ethics with a few rules. So how do you know what's right and wrong? Personal choice, as long as you stay within these boundaries. But the gospel has clear and unapologetic demands on our lifestyle that disciples must submit to. If you want to follow Jesus, all of you goes in. You're under his lordship. Our culture says that to be fulfilled, as a human, you've got to look inside and find all your own deepest desires. Find out who you really are and then live on the basis of that. The gospel says the only way to to be free is to look outside yourself. To so look outside to Jesus Christ and Him crucified and follow him no matter what the cost. Follow him wherever he goes, wherever he, he sends you. You must bet your life on Jesus, become his slave. John the Baptist is supposed to is a clear example of this. He, he lives and serves in the world. And if you live a consistent Christian life, you will find that makes you attractive and repulsive to non-believing people. If you only attract people, there's a problem, you're doing something wrong. Maybe your life is not marked by holiness and you're not seen as different and there's not a kind of conspicuous goodness that shines out. But if you only repulse other people, your impact on others is off-putting, then it might be because you're too harsh or because you're inconsistent. We've got to be both... Attractive and repulsive. <laughs> There's a paradox. And part of the paradox is how ordinary the disciples are. These guys who are following Jesus, they are not superheroes. They are um, very ordinary people, very mixed ability. There are no real special guys among them. The Bible honestly reveals their flaws and their follies, their foibles to us. They are not great pillars of faith Or highly skilled executives with an MBA. The Bible shows us their failures. And you know, this is one of the things that people find offensive about Christianity, is Christians. You know that, don't you? We Christians are not necessarily people of higher moral achievement. There are some non-Christians who've lived a much better life than us. We are not necessarily even nicer than non-Christians. There are some Christians who are a real pain in the neck. I, I know, I can be one of them. Christians are not better people at first, but they are forgiven. Christians are flawed, and that is offensive to many others, and it can be a barrier to belief. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, I think I've quoted it before here, called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional account of a, a senior devil writing to a junior devil about his job. And the junior devil's job is to, is to destroy the faith of a new Christian, a young Christian. He's this, he calls him the patient. And, and the, the senior devil called Screwtape writes this. He says, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now back with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. <laughs> so he's saying in order to get him back to the devil, it's good news he's going to church. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That is a spectacle which makes everyone uneasy. But unfortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is a building on the new estate. And when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to him with an offering of a shiny little book containing something which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of religious songs, mostly bad and in very small print. And when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of neighbors who he's been trying to avoid. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. (laughs) Work hard, says the devil, on the disappointment and anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a church member. Now if you are a a skeptical person here or a a seeker, someone who is looking into the Christian faith you're exploring, don't fall for screw tape strategy, will you? Look beyond us, please, look beyond us. We're the ordinary, fallible messengers of a glorious, infallible Lord, the one who sent us. Look beyond us. That's what going on mission with Jesus looks like. It's an extension of his work. It's practical and preaching. It's urgent. There's a paradox. It's ordinary. The first point was much longer than the next two. Don't worry. You get home for your Mother's Day lunch. Remember, going on mission with Jesus. Secondly, he means dying to self. Dying to self. The mission is dangerous. This world is under the domination of dark powers. Our text is teaching that disciples will inevitably face rejection. Look at the beginning of the, the chapter 6. Jesus himself comes to teach in the synagogue of his hometown with his disciples. And when the Sabbath comes, he begins to teach. And many of them who heard him are amazed. And being amazed in Mark is not a good thing. It means you just don't believe it. I can't believe it. Who is this? This is Jesus. Look at what they say. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? He's a woodworker, craftsman. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, four brothers? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. (laughs) They take offense at Jesus Christ himself. Even the Son of God is rejected by his own neighbors. And John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever lived, was rejected by the authorities. And we see that. Those in power don't want to talk about another king. This is why many of the largest nations in this world, China, India, Iran, Pakistan, to name just a few, any talk of serving Jesus Christ wholeheartedly could get you killed or imprisoned or lose your job or your career or, or be ostracized in some way. People don't want to talk of another king, which is what Jesus is. And in our culture, you're free to believe what you want. But don't confront people with their sins. <laughs> oh, sin? The lesson to all of us is this. Venture on mission for Jesus and you, at some level you will have to die. At some level you will have to die. What does this mean for us? Julian Hardiman is a pastor in Cambridge. He's a brilliant author. He's written this book called The Joy of Service. The Joy of Service. And in this book, he says about going to a party with his wife, who is a dentist. And they were with this uh, dinner party, very posh dinner party. And one of the, a senior lady, lady approached him and said, Oh, who are you? I'm Deborah's husband. And who is Deborah. She's one of your husband's juniors. And what do you do? I'm a church manager and a pastoral assistant. Oh, do they pay people to do that sort of thing? They left that party and went to another one with younger people. They're all in their 20s and it felt more of a buzz. They got talking with a fellow guest. I asked him what about himself and his work for a while. And then he asked me what I did. I worked for a church without another word he turned away and started a conversation with someone else. So then he turned to the person on the other side and started chatting about himself and his work for a while, and then he asked me what I did. I worked for a church, and without a word, he turned away and started a conversation with someone else. At this point, I got a small sense of the high social standing of church workers. You know, now that is not. No one's going to serve my head on a plate, literally. But you will be rejected if you follow Jesus Christ. The hometown people are actually offended by Jesus because he comes from very ordinary social roots. He's the local carpenter, so they think they know him, know him already. The culture, their culture, told them that someone from ordinary roots could not be great. Their cultural beliefs told them to rule out his greatness. Yet they saw his wisdom and his miracles and his power, and that put them in a twist. What were they going to believe? What do you do, friends, when you bump into a discrepancy between your belief system and Jesus Christ? They decided against the evidence and in favor of the prejudice. And as a result, Jesus himself was amazed at their lack of faith because they were unbelievable. And it says he could not do Any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them does that mean he was literally incapable no we know Jesus can do anything he wants he can calm a storm he can raise someone from the dead but it means that he can't bring himself to do miracles there because Jesus is not doing party tricks he doesn't do miracles to try and persuade people to believe in him the miracles are a demonstration of his kingdom if you reject the king and his kingdom, don't expect him to try and perform for you. He just moves on. Notice in the text, Jesus is astonished, and he leaves them. Now, because of the need to die to ourselves, we have to be devoted to the task, an absolute requirement. We've got to forget about our personal comfort. Being with Jesus is not a jolly excursion to the best place. People have to be convinced that we really believe it in. No one will take seriously messengers who claim to bring an urgent message of life and death when it becomes evident that their first concern is their own ease. So going on mission with Jesus means dying to self. But finally, it means discovering glory. Discovering glory. In our text, there is a victory in the midst of all the suffering. Really? You may think I'm clutching at straws, but notice... The passage didn't end at verse 29. Verse 30 again. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So remember, this is a sandwich. And we've just had the most gruesome account of John the Baptist being butchered, being killed. The sick abuse of power by this puppet king Herod. His socially climbing wife Herodias who manipulates Herod by selling out her daughter's dignity in a sordid display of lust and drunkenness, leading to the beheading of an innocent man. Yet, you can cut off John the Baptist's head and it doesn't stop the message. Because immediately, 12 messengers take his place. You notice that? John is killed, 12 more go forward. Jesus sends them out two by two. This massively multiplies the mission. One is rejected, but his work goes on and expands. The kingdom cannot be stopped by any human opposition. And look at verse 16. People are wondering who who is um, Jesus? And Herod hears it, and you know what? He's terrified. He says this: John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. John secretly suspects that John the Baptist somehow, Herod secretly suspects that John the Baptist somehow is going to triumph. And in one sense he was right because there is a resurrection from the dead. The tyrant will die and his rule will end but the martyr dies and his, his glory begins. This world is filled with people who want to stamp out the message of God with, their dis, with its disturbing implications but those people will not win. When the princes and rulers of this world have finished stamping God is not finished. This God who raises the dead and will enable his disciples to remain faithful. And the mission ends in victory. This whole story is a a preview of a forthcoming attraction. At the end of Mark, we're going to see the same thing replayed on a bigger scale because there are parallels between John the Baptist, the messenger, and Jesus the king. Jesus, too, will be arrested unjustly. Jesus, too, will be betrayed by a a manipulator behind the scenes. Jesus, too, will be sold out by a cowardly king. Jesus, too, will be led to a gruesome execution, this time on a cross. And his disciples will come and take his body to the tomb. But, although King Herod was wrong about John the Baptist rising from the dead, he is right that there will be a resurrection from the dead. It will be Jesus Christ who defeats death. Even death can't keep him down. And that is our hope as he sends us out into a world to take up our cross and follow him, to die to ourselves on the path to maturity. It is that this world is not our home. We're just traveling through. Our death will not be the end. It will just be the beginning. We started with an advert by uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton. How might we rewrite that advert for Jesus' mission? Men and women wanted for hazardous journey. No wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger of rejection, safe return guaranteed. Honor and glory beyond all you can possibly imagine. Let's follow him this week. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear your voice beyond all the voices of this world that come crowding into us. You sent your disciples out, not alone, but two by two, and you promised to be with them. Thank you that their mission was effective and attractive, even in the midst of rejection and misunderstanding. Help us to follow you, we pray. And for those here who are still Looking in and unsure and skeptical, we ask that you'd give them the courage and the conviction to close with Christ, to come into his family, to come under his rule. Amen.